If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, we'll come there in just a moment. Well, we had our second Lehman Layups March Madness pool this year. Pool, no gambling involved, by the way, if there needs to be the, any kind of things set up with that. But uh, And I am where I normally am at the very bottom of that. And it's fun to see all the Cinderella stories that emerge in all of this. But it looks like, unless something has happened in the last few minutes, that it's going to be four Blue Bloods, four legacy teams, teams that have very long and storied programs that are building on their past. And the recruiting is easier and the players that you draw are of much greater magnitude than schools that are Johnny-come-latelys or St. Peter's or whoever it is that are just trying to make their way into things. You know, legacies are a part of just about every major thing, it would seem to me. But the most important legacy that there could ever be is our legacy of faith. You know, whatever it is that you say about your name and about what you achieve or accomplish in this life, it's going to be secondary to the faith and whether or not you pass that along to your children and your further descendants. By way of background, before we get to Genesis chapter 22, we see something happening in Genesis chapter 18 where God is sending some representatives, some men, to go to speak to Abraham and Sarah to let them know that they are going to be receiving that son that God had already promised to Abraham. And as he sends them, he sends them with a message in Genesis chapter 18 saying, with regard to Abraham, for I have chosen him because he will command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about what he has said concerning Abraham. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. Now, in context, God is saying this to these messengers to justify why it is that he is going to let Abraham know what's about to happen to Lot and all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. That righteous Lot and his family live there, but they are surrounded by depravity. And God has looked at the circumstance and he has made the decision that he is going to destroy them because of their wickedness. So I want you to think about the contrast of legacies that we have. On the one hand, we have God speaking to Abraham and telling him that he is going to be the father of many nations and he is going to be a direct ancestor of the Messiah. And you have on the other side of that the legacy of Lot. You know, often you could say that Lot and his family lived in Sodom, but after they left, Sodom continued to live in Lot and his family. Only three of his family members ultimately make it out of that valley. And as they find themselves in the little place of Zoar, Lot's daughters are afraid there are no men for them to be able to have children, and so they do the unthinkable. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 32 to 38, you have each of those daughters in turn uh, devising the plan that they're going to get their father drunk and they're going to go into him one after the other, and they do. And as the result of that, this is the beginning of the Ammonite and the Moabite nations. Do you see the contrast? The father of many nations, the father of the Messiah. On the other side, you have the father of perverse daughters and wicked unbelievers. The Ammonites and the Moabites are going to be a thorn in the side of God's people for centuries to come. Legacies are very interesting things. There are some families that we would associate with being in the same business, being in the same line of work, and their impact, their influence lives on in the generations that follow them. 
It's very difficult in the best of circumstances to leave a legacy of faith. We live in a culture of unbelief in every generation. The majority are in resistance to the will of God and are going on the Broadway, Jesus says. But even though it's difficult to do, it's a very doable thing. That in a world going wrong, we can raise children and grandchildren that are going in the direction that God wants them to go. And what it hinges on, at the very heart of it, is what we saw in Romans chapter 4. And that is on the kind of faith that lives inside of us and inside of our homes. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get to the land of Moriah, and there offer him as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will tell you of. And Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the offering, and he went to the place of which God told him. And it came to pass on the third day that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And he said unto his young men, Stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will return unto you. And Abraham laid the wood on uh, Isaac his son and he took fire in his hand and the knife and he went to the place of which God told him. And the two of them went together. And Isaac said unto his father, My father, and he said unto him, Here I am, my son. And he says, see, here is the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together. And when he came to the place of which God told him, he uh, built the altar and he placed the wood on it. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he placed him on the altar upon the wood. And he stretched forth his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord spoke from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he says, do not harm the child, do do not touch the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you would not withhold your son, your only son from me. And behold, Abraham looked up and there behind him in a thicket was a ram with its horns caught in it. And Abraham took it and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And he called the name of the place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. In that text, we see very centrally that faith is a part of how Abraham succeeded on that great moment of testing where his faith was tried like perhaps never it had been before or ever would be again. And how many fathers in history, how many parents have faced a dilemma like that? But what made his faith so successful that it not only lived in him, but it lived in his descendants after him? Notice with me very briefly three things, three elements of his faith. And those elements of faith living in Him are elements that can live in our faith and influence our families today. The first element that was in that faith that we see in Genesis 22 is love. I don't know if you are a Bible marker or not, but if you go to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, maybe put a circle around or underline that word love. Maybe out in the, in the margin of that, put the first occurrence of the word love. 561 times some form of the word love is going to be uh, said in the Bible, but this is the first time. And the first time the word love is used is not used with regard to marital love. Think about all the Bible says about marriage and the kind of love. An entire Bible book is written on the subject of marital love, but this isn't marital love. This is not brotherly love. 
You know, John would say in 1 John chapter 3 that brotherly love is a principle that goes all the way back to the beginning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and verse 10. It's not love of country. It is not even a love of God or a love from God. It is the love of a father for his only begotten son. And while it very clearly represents the love of another righteous father for his only begotten son, don't miss the clear contextual fact that said right here that Abraham loved his son. It influenced the decisions that he made. And you'll notice that the emphasis of the text is not on Isaac. Isaac sweetly and simply obeyed his father, but it's on the decisions of a father and how his love impacted the decisions that he made. You know, when we think about the the struggle that we have in raising our children to go right in a world that's going wrong, we're trying to find a balance, aren't we? We can't indulge our children. We can't say uh, yes to them all the time. We've got to make sure that we're finding out that, that little sweet spot of discipline, fairness and firmness, law and love. It can be difficult, and we can wonder sometimes, do our children know that we love them? But you see, as we wrestle with that, it's a wrestling match that we have got to win. Abraham is here and everything that follows in the text, the very difficult decision he's going to make in putting his son up on that altar is driven by love. It's a love for God first and that's going to be the greatest love that can live in our families. It's going to influence positively the love that we have in our homes. But he loved his son. God says, this is the son that you love. Love in a special way. This one you've been waiting for for so long. But I want you to see what characterizes their love. The love that Abraham has for his son. The first thing that I see there is a togetherness. Two times in the text, in verse 6 and verse 8, it says that the two of them went together. Can you think about it from Abraham's standpoint? He's lived an entire century of time. His wife, his Sarah's, her womb is dead, and yet God causes this to happen, and now they have a child together. Don't you think he's making up for lost time and is spending as much time with him as he can? Sometimes we we wrestle with that quality time versus quantity time. But that didn't seem to be a biblical concept. We need to give our children a lot of both. This love was characterized by not just the togetherness in Genesis 22, but the togetherness that built the strong bond that made him love him. It's also characterized by tenderness. Do you notice after they leave those young men and they're going to the place of sacrifice that very sweetly and innocently, that Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, Abraham doesn't scold him, he doesn't ignore him, but he says, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. You know, that's a challenge. It's tough for me. I have one of my sons in the the auditorium tonight. It's something I struggle with at times with speaking tenderly. You know, maybe that's something that our, our mothers can do uh, more readily, but it's something that we, we all must do, is to strive to show that tender affection. But another thing that demonstrated that love was, was teaching truth transparently. It's not said in the text, but isn't it implied that somewhere along the way, if you look in the text, you see that Abraham is answering Isaac's question and he says God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, but he knows exactly what that sacrifice is going to be. And somewhere along the way, Isaac learned that he was the sacrifice. And so somehow Abraham had to teach that truth to them. You know, I believe this is the, is the case. 
that if our children know that we love them, then we can teach the most difficult truths and we can make the most difficult and unpopular decisions and through that build in them a faith that will be a legacy that outlives us. In his faith, I want you to not miss that there is a love, a love for Isaac and a love that's very obvious for his heavenly father. There's a second element of that faith I want you to notice that made that faith so powerful that it lived on in Isaac and in his descendants. And that's submission. In verses 3 and following, there are three commands that are very clearly given to Abraham. He says, take, go, and offer. And what I want you to observe with me is that Abraham immediately sets about to obey those commands as quickly as possible. He obeys the first command by taking his son. Verse 3. And he obeys the second command by going to the place that God told him of in verse 3. And he tries to obey the third command when he stretches forth his hand and he takes the knife to offer his son in verse 9 and verse 10. As far as we can see, there is no record of Abraham at all arguing with God, reasoning with God, rationalizing with God. When we go to the New Testament, Abraham is given to us as an example of his faith. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. But he's also given to us as an example of submission and obedience. Look at James chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. What I want you to see is that even in this moment... To this point in Isaac's short life, Isaac is already learning the example of submission from his father. He is seeing his father obeying God even when it's painful to do so. But what about Isaac? Do you remember in the text that was read a moment ago in Romans chapter 4? It tells us that Isaac came along when Abraham was as good as dead being a 100 years old. So that happens at a certain point in time. And now Isaac is old enough that he can carry the wood And he is able physically to climb up on top of a mountain. It seems to me that Isaac could have very clearly broken free from his father if he wanted to, but he didn't. He had learned submission from his father. It's so important for us to be as consistent as we can be in our homes. The whole do as I say, not as I do has been one of the most colossal failures in parenting that the world has ever known. Our children are smart and they can see through that. And so we've got to be very careful to demonstrate to them a humility that says when we tell them to do something, we don't live up to that standard, that we own that. And we say, that's right, and I shouldn't have done that, and please forgive me, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to do better. In Galatians chapter 2, it's a remarkable incident that happens. There's the man who preaches the first gospel sermon to the Jews... And then he's the same man that preaches the first gospel sermon to the Gentiles. And in in that sermon, in Acts chapter 10, it is that preacher that says to Cornelius and his house, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation. He that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. But what does he do in Galatians chapter 2? He's eating with the Gentiles. He's living like a Gentile until certain ones of James come along. And when they get there, Peter withdraws from the Gentiles and ceases to eat with them. So bad it got that the son of encouragement, Barnabas, goes along with it. And Paul says, I came and I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. I don't know how much time passes from that moment. But I believe that Second Peter's written after the book of Galatians. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, what does Peter say with regard to Paul? 
He says, our beloved brother Paul in his epistles writes of these things. Do you see the humility? Peter did not on that occasion say, hey, look, I have a perfectly good reason for why I'm not eating with the Gentiles and I'm doing this. That attitude of humility allowed him to be submissive. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have the example that's given to us of Jesus. After the heroes of faith that we've been examining in Bible class on Wednesday night, we realize that they are this great cloud of witness that surround us. But the great example, the greatest of all, he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will... Abraham submitted himself to the Heavenly Father's will, and so must we, not only for our own faith, but so that that faith will live in our children. And then the third element of his faith was the element of optimism. I love this, and I think this is probably as necessary in the world we live in in 2022 as anything. In verse 5, we see the beginning of that. Abraham's faith had optimism. The statistics for college student loan debt. I know we have college students in here and graduation is for a few around the corner and it's just a reality of life. You already know this. You're sitting down with financial advisors and so forth. But for the millennials back in 2009, the statistic was the average student loan debt of all students was $24,000. Well, they've come out, and that's the average. So I know some people have a a zero balance, and you know what that means, that somebody has 50,000 or more, or even well beyond that. Well, Gen Z, the statistics came out last year, and here's what they say that the average student loan debt is upon graduation for someone in Generation Z. It's $31,000. In 2013, there were statistics that were done with regard to the millennials and what their unemployment rate was. It was 13.1%, twice the national average. And now in 2021, the statistics are out. And for Gen Z, the percentage, the unemployment rate is 15.1. It's twice the national average. And when we think about certain other statistics, and not that any of us are politically active, and maybe all of us distrust our politicians, but it's no worse than in those two youngest generations. They anticipate in the 2022 midterms that in in a large survey that was just completed, that well under 20% of them plan to be involved in the political process and vote. It seems to me that a black cloud of pessimism has settled in over at least some of our nation's youth. What they need to see from us is what Isaac saw from Abraham on that occasion. Abraham was optimistic, wasn't he? I mean, you think about it incredibly. He believes God and he knows what God has told him to do. But when he gets to the place where he's going to go sacrifice his son, in Genesis 22 and verse 5, he says, "Um, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go over there and worship, and we will return unto you. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 tells us why. He believed that God would allow him to be raised from the dead, even if he took Isaac's life. His optimism was not born of the external circumstances around him. It wasn't that he looked out and goes, oh yeah, everything looks really like it's going my way, and so I'm going to do what God says. His faith was um, a factor of his belief in the God that he served. It seems to me that that's what we need to be exhibiting and exuding for our children, for our grandchildren, for those that we influence in our homes. The message is not that things are going to get better politically, Nationally, economically, or educationally. 
whether they do or don't, could not be more irrelevant to our ultimate destiny, and that's eternity. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 19, the Bible tells us that Abraham hoped against hope. It's a faith that caused him to have that kind of optimism. The Great Commission is not going to be rescinded before the Lord comes again. The the command to be faithful and to encourage and to strengthen one another, that's going to be a part of Christian living as long as the earth shall stand. And so this optimism needs to first live in us. And then we need to make sure that we instill it in our children. They need to have that strength that's going to help them to be able to stand up to whatever may come about. You know, when you think about Abraham, it can be easy for us to treat him like some other Old Testament characters and just kind of relegate him to that ancient patriarchal period. But what's significant to me is that Abraham is mentioned 71 times in the New Testament. And when he's mentioned, he's mentioned as an example for Christians almost every single time. God's saying, look, here's how I want you to live today. Go back to Abraham and see. Legacy is one of those very interesting words. It's an enigma. It's, it's hard to figure out. I mean, we all want to leave a legacy, and we all know that we're going to leave some kind of legacy. It's always dangerous when you have this conversation with your wife, but I, I was having this conversation with her right before we came to church. And I said, hey, is her maiden name is Gillespie. I said, is there a Gillespie trait that really stands out? I had my own answer, and it turned out I was, I was right, or at least I was right enough. And she said, yeah, it's, it's the mouth and the chin. Now, what you'd need to do is have a large sample size of the Gillespie family, and you'd see that they're all musicians, so they have that embouchure there is what they call it. If you're a musician, you know, it just shapes a certain way, I guess. I don't know. I'm out of my depths. But the lips, it's very Gillespie-like. And then I said, hey, what about Pollard's? What, uh, what characteristic? And he says, I don't, y'all all look alike. And then she said, the forehead. Well, I didn't know what to do with that. I guess there's plenty of it to sample. Our children look like us, but and you needed it when he was my height to see it. When Carl was my height, and as we were growing up, and he was about my height from the time he was five, you know. But he, you could look at his face and look at mine, and you could look at our pictures at the same age, and you couldn't tell one from the other. I mean, I, I, as we used to say, I put my mark on him, right? He looked just like me. But I realized, for good or bad, my children look like me. And what I see in them is the imprint, the legacy that I have at least influenced. That's a sobering idea, isn't it? What will our legacy be for our children and our grandchildren? The Apostle Paul could look at Timothy's life and he could say, when I see that genuine faith that is in you, that first existed in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it's in you also. Of all the things that we're going to pass along to our children, whether looks or, or inheritances or whatever else it may be, we want to make sure that we give them a faith that will outlive us because... In the natural order of things, they're going to live on after we've left this life. And we want that faith to continue to be there in them. The good news is, at least it seems to me, that no matter where you are in any of this process, you're still building a legacy. 
you're still able to influence and to change and to build on her or turn in a different direction if you need to. Or if you feel like you're, you're even though we're never going to do it perfectly, that you're generally going in the right direction, stay the path, stay the course, no matter what happens, because you'll be thankful you did, ultimately. The greatest legacy of faith that we could leave is to obey the gospel and to live faithful Christian lives. It may be that somebody needs to make a change in that regard, either to become a Christian or to come back home to Christ. If this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.